In my meeting with Dr. Dutcher, I was curious about the strategies being developed by the cooperative clinical research groups to evaluate new biologic therapy for renal cell cancer, and she began our conversation by commenting on plans of the renal subcommittee of ECOG, for which she is the chairperson. We'll be doing a study with VEGF-TRAP, which is a new and improved antibody binding to vascular endothelial growth factor, and that'll be in people that have progressed after the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We're hoping to do a study with Bayer, and it's been designed and actually approved, so we'll see where the landscape is. But it's a study to look at the benefit of continuing serafinib after progression and adding either interferon based on Chris Ryan's data that was presented today or adding gemcitabine, which has some activity in renal cell. And it would be a way of see, and then patients would be randomized to stay on or to discontinue serafinib. So it would really be asking the question of giving persistent tyrosine kinase inhibitor beyond progression. Whether that'll be doable given the data that was presented in the last couple of days, I don't know. But I think it's an important question. And there are some data for synergy with both of those agents. That's a fascinating concept. It's debated a lot as it relates to bevacizumab and as well as actually trastuzumab in breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit more about the theoretical basis to be looking at this question? Well, the theoretical basis is that these drugs have an antiangiogenic component that they're suppressing growth. And the Avastin data actually shows it the most. If you look at Jim Yang's paper, where he drew these plots of the percentage of tumor growth as patients were being treated. And so with the high dose of Avastin, most of the patients had some tumor shrinkage, not PRs, but some tumor shrinkage, and then they were stable. And then if they did start to grow, they grew at a very different pace than what we saw with the people that were primarily resistant. So the thought is that even if somebody starts to break through they're going to grow slower than they would have if you just released the break and taken the drug away. But we don't know that for a fact, and I think it's a hypothesis that really needs to be tested. And what specifically is the eligibility and design that's being discussed? Well, this would be patients who are on a stable dose of serafinib. Some docs are actually, you know, escalating the dose up a la Gleevec in CML, but it would be a stable dose of serafinib with resist evidence of progression. And, you know, obviously patients that the physician doesn't feel that he's obligated to make a switch, for example, to the other tyrosine kinase inhibitor as a possibility and would be willing to add another drug to serafinib or to change to something other than a tyrosine kinase inhibitor as a next step. My read still is that these drugs have equivalent activity. Which drugs? The serafinib, sunitinib, and probably a little more activity than Avastin, although the first line of Avastin data was better than the prior data. So I put them into the category of drugs that primarily act through anti-angiogenesis. They slow down progression with a median of somewhere around six to eight months, depending on first line or second line. And about 70% of people will have some tumor shrinkage that has some meaning in terms of delaying progression. And probably you can continue through progression in terms of time on study. And, you know, I understand the argument of level one, level two data, but the fact of the matter is the pattern for all of these drugs is identical in terms of the outcomes. So I think it's going to be toxicity profile, comfort in terms of managing patients with a given drug. I think physicians will become comfortable with a drug, and that's the one they'll use. What's your experience been with the two drugs in terms of side effects and toxicity? 
Well, we were involved in the Targets trial. We were not involved in the Phase two Sutent trial, but we were involved in the Phase three. And then we put a lot of patients on expanded access protocols as they opened up because we just felt we were obligated to the patients to make the drugs available. I think about a third of patients on either drug require a lot of dose adjustment. And two-thirds just keep chucking through without much problem at all. The ones that have problems take up a lot of time for the nursing staff. But it's not like they're having life-threatening toxicity. They're managing and they're adjusted. So I've seen the overwhelming fatigue that's described with Sutent, but it's not universal. I've seen more myelosuppression, which can be an issue, which requires you to do the dose interruptions. The dose interruptions are awkward only because you have to think about it. It's not like they're continuing on a drug. But as I've heard other people say, the patients are going to take drug holidays on their own to just make sure that they can stay on the drug but manage the drug. Have you made the decision in a non-protocol setting about first-line therapy, and is that going to change at all? First-line therapy, I happen to be a site that offers high-dose IL-2. So first-line therapy, that is offered if the person is a candidate. For somebody, for example, I have a gentleman that's 80 years old on dialysis, that's not an IL-2 candidate. So in him, we talked about either the sunitinib or serafinib, and he had an endobronchial lesion where a little bit of shrinkage would be a big deal, so we went with sunitinib. On the other hand, another patient that was a first-line patient, not a candidate for IL-2, we went with serafinib because it was something that they thought they could manage better by having the twice-daily dosing. So we don't yet have medical reasons, other than perhaps if you need a little bit more shrinkage, sutent might provide that. So it sounds like you're saying, and I've heard this before, that you think that maybe the response rate might be greater initially to sunitinib, but you're thinking that in the long run, progression of survival and overall survival might be the same? Exactly. I think that's true. Where are we heading in terms of adjuvant trials? Well, there's one open adjuvant trial that's having a lot of difficulty. That's the Wilex antibody G250 and that's a weekly infusion, and it's placebo-controlled, and it's just having a lot of problems with accrual. I think mainly because of the study design, the eligibility. The cooperative groups are going to do an NCI-sponsored trial of serafinib versus placebo and zunitinib versus placebo for a year in high-risk patients. And, you know, it's being discussed, it's open, and it's being targeted to urologists, And I think we all have a little bit of trepidation that urologists are not going to tolerate the kind of hand-holding that you might need to do with patients going on to these drugs. Quite different, you know, office style than a medical oncologist. But hopefully they'll keep their medical oncology colleagues in the loop so that if they have to, they can turf them over for management. I think it's an important study to see if these drugs will work in the adjuvant setting. The third adjuvant trial is antigenics, which is still being updated. It's the autologous heat shock protein vaccine. And it hasn't been reported yet. And they're anticipating doing a second trial. But that would be perhaps in very early risk patients. And what exactly is the mechanism of action? Can you talk a little bit about the agent? It's a vaccine that's made from the tumor and it's taking heat shock protein, which acts as a chaperone to move antigens to the surface of the tumor cells and then makes them more recognizable to the immune system. So it's attempting to, we think that there's a lot of immune escape, obviously, in tumors. And so 
the heat shock protein chaperones the antigens to the surface and makes it more likely that the body's immune system will recognize this as foreign or as bad, which would be the tumor. And in animal studies, it takes a certain number of these inoculations for it to take hold. And there's data that the less tumor burden there is, the better. So it's going to be looked at in early low-risk patients, but it may make a difference. What about trials in the metastatic setting? What are some of the concepts being looked at right now you think are most exciting? Well, there's a lot of interest in doing combination studies, either combinations of the newer agents or combinations of the new agents with the old agents and combinations with chemotherapy. I think it's almost we've got too many options at the moment. The permutations are enormous. But I suspect that, bottom line, it will be tyrosine kinase inhibitor plus Avastin plus mTOR and see if you can... I don't know if we can put all three together. My sense is they're going to be more toxic than we really anticipate. Can you talk a little bit about CCI-779? Yeah, CCI-779 is Temsorolimus. It's an mTOR inhibitor. mTOR is mammalian target of rapamycin. It's an important protein that's central to a number of cellular metabolic pathways for both apoptosis, for cell proliferation, and for angiogenesis. And it controls ribosome proteins that contribute to protein synthesis. It controls glucose and lipid metabolism. Not controls, but it's involved in those pathways. So it's a critical signaling, cell signaling molecule. And in tumors, it's constitutively on. So it's triggering proliferation and angiogenesis and continued cell growth. It can be activated through a number of pathways. One that's of note in brain tumors is knockout of P10, and most gliomas have P10 knocked out. So that's one thought for looking at it in brain tumors. It also activates cyclin D1, which is activated in mantle cell lymphoma, and so that's another tumor type that there's great interest in looking at it. But in renal cell, I think the main interest is whether by its activation of angiogenesis pathways, inhibition of mTOR would be critical. I think the mTOR inhibitors are going to be even harder to combine with chemotherapy or with other targeted therapies because it's such a central pathway. It's got so many pathways of its own that it's blocking that adding another inhibitor may be problematic. Getting back to the TKIs, what do we know about these agents and other tumors? Well, there is evidence that these agents are active. The randomized discontinuation trial was actually a broad phase two trial. They did a number of different tumor types. And what's of interest is there's definitely activity in another rare disease, papillary thyroid carcinoma, particularly with serafinib. I know that that study is really quite promising. And interestingly, hepatocellular carcinoma for reasons that are unclear. I mean, that, again, speaks to the fact that we don't really know what all these drugs do. I mean, we're looking at angiogenesis because that's central to renal cell, but they may work by a number of different mechanisms, and so you just don't want to cut the options off too tightly. They're also being looked at, serafinib in particular is being looked at in melanoma because it has a RAF inhibitor, and melanoma has mutated and upregulated RAF proteins. But in melanoma, it looks like it's going to be given in combination with chemotherapy. And I think these drugs will be looked at as adjuncts to chemotherapy in a number of different... Well, they already are. We saw there are a number of abstracts here with both, mostly, I think, serafinib. I've seen more of than sunitinib. I think they're a little further behind in terms of combinations. But it's going to be looked at with standard chemotherapeutic regimens in combination. You mentioned the randomized discontinuation study. Can you talk a little bit more about that and also the design? Because it's kind of a different type of trial. 
Yeah, it's an interesting design. And this is something that's probably more accepted in renal cell treatment than it is in other tumors. But the concept is that these drugs are not necessarily going to produce complete or partial responses, but they're going to delay tumor growth. And therefore, what we're going to see is delay in progression. So progression-free survival becomes a really important endpoint. And even, you know, obviously survival is the ultimate endpoint, but the surrogate is going to be progression-free survival. And so if we're not going to see responses, then we have to be able to see whether the drug is actually doing something or whether it's the natural history of the disease. So in the randomized discontinuation trial, what they did was everybody on study received the drug, serafinib, for 12 weeks. They all got treated. Then if they had 25% shrinkage by resist, then that was seen as some evidence of response. They were continued on treatment. If they had 25% growth, then they were taken off treatment. But at 12 weeks, if they were somewhere in the middle, you know, not growth, not shrinkage, but somewhere in the middle, they were randomized to placebo or to continue serafinib. And then they went another 12 weeks for another assessment. And at the end of 24 weeks, there was double the number of patients on serafinib who had not progressed compared to the placebo. So that demonstrated that taking the drug did something and continuing the drug did something and stopping the drug, there was continued growth of the tumor. So it showed this ability to inhibit progression. And so that was the basis for the randomized placebo-controlled trial. And where is that, right? The randomized against placebo, correct? Can you talk a little bit about that study? So that's the TARGETS trial. This, the data that I just mentioned with the randomized discontinuation was for renal cell. That was all renal cell, and that was the biggest signal. So then there has been an international study of serafinib versus placebo in second-line patients who have had cytokines and progressed metastatic renal cell cancer. And that study also has shown a significant improvement in progression-free survival. The difficulty is is that once the progression-free survival was observed, it was felt to be unethical to continue the trial with a placebo, and so the patients were unblinded, and placebo patients were allowed to get onto the active drug. And so that may confound survival, but as we saw in some of the studies today, in fact, Dr. Escudier in France has looked at his patients who crossed over, and he can already demonstrate that they have benefited from adding the drug back from starting serafinib even after having progressed on the placebo. So it's pretty clear that we're going to see continued benefit in both arms of that study. What do you know about responses to one TKI after treatment with the other? It's pretty much anecdotal at this point. Everybody's trying it out to see what happens, and I think, again, it's going to depend on where the patient is at the time that they progress. If they're really getting sick from their disease, you know, that may not be possible. But there are people who are in pretty good shape that have radiographic evidence of progression that have been switched over to the other drug either direction, you know, sutent to serafinib, serafinib to sutent, serafinib to agaron, and we're seeing responses. So, you know, you would intuitively say, well, if they progress through one, they must be resistant. But it's pretty clear that is not the case, at least not in all circumstances. What are some of the other uh, papers or posters that have been presented here that you think are important for clinicians in practice to know about? Well, I think the question has come up a lot, and I think it's important to get the information out, what to do about EGFR in renal cell. Epidermal growth factor receptor is overexpressed in renal cell cancer, clear cell, papillary renal cell, all types. 
And so it's been targeted with a lot of these agents, including Arisa, including Tarsiva alone, including Cetuximab. And there really is very, very limited data to suggest, almost no data to say that it's an active target for renal cell cancer, despite being overexpressed. And it may just not be, you know, it's probably not the receptor that's signaling tumor growth in that disease. There's another antibody, Abgenics, that has activity in colon cancer, which is also an anti-EGF receptor antibody. Everybody that's used it's got one or two patients that have been long-term on it with kidney cancer, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think we've got much evidence. The lapatinib paper that was presented two days ago, which is an ERB-B1 and ERB-B2 inhibitor, I think was not a convincing paper, and there's data that would suggest that ERB-B2 is not an important target in renal cell either. So, Any other papers that were presented here you want to comment on? Interesting paper by Ben Tay, very technical, but an interesting paper, where he looked at gene microarrays in papillary renal cell and was able to dissect out two subtypes, well, really three, good prognosis, poor prognosis, and then a mixed group. And the implications of this are looking at the genes that are overexpressed and underexpressed and maybe coming up with a couple that have an immunohistochemical correlate, which can then give us a marker easily by doing staining that may, in fact, have some implications for developing new drugs for those diseases. So I think his work has been steady and consistent and reproducible, and so he really leads the way in this approach to trying to get a handle on the biology of renal cell cancer. What are some of the common questions that you get from oncologists in practice about renal cell maybe that we haven't talked about? One of the big ones is bone metastases. You know, bone disease is a real issue in renal cell, and it hasn't been particularly amenable to treatment with cytokine therapy. I don't think we know yet how much we'll get from this tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but I had a patient that had a few bone lesions, one of which was in the femoral neck, and she elected to continue sunitinib first and snapped her hip But when they did the histological evaluation, the entire tumor area was necrotic, suggesting that she was, in fact, getting a response from the drug. So I'm hoping that we are going to see responses in bone disease because it can be a miserable problem. I mean, we talked about one case where it was an isolated bone met, but usually one leads to a dozen, and it's a problem. I get asked about the brain met question, and we have not had any complications of treating brain metastases with these drugs so far. I mean, they do spontaneously hemorrhage, so I don't know that you can blame it on a drug if that were to happen. We try to not use whole brain irradiation if we can help it in renal cell cancer because it's so resistant to radiation, and it just leads to chronic problems if people live long enough, which they often do. So if it's single metastases, I try to go to surgery. If it's a couple, I still try to go to surgery. If it's too many, then we use gamma knife and go with focal radiation rather than whole brain irradiation. The other problem for renal cell is hypercalcemia, which is a major impairment, usually late in the course of the disease. As was stated in the abstract and presentation, and in my own personal experience, CCI 779 has treated patients with ongoing hypercalcemia where it's completely reversed the problem. So I'm very impressed with that in that setting. The only other thing to comment about is that there are some nursing networks now to try to talk for the nursing staff because there is a lot of symptom management with the newer drugs, and I think it's important for the nurses in the offices to get up to speed 
with dealing with rashes and hand foot syndrome and mucositis. I mean, it's a different spectrum. I mean, we learned how to take care of, you know, erisa rash, and we learned how to take care of oxaliplatinum. And, you know, I mean, it's nothing they can't learn to do, but it's just a different spectrum, and people need to get used to it. The rashes, you can usually treat through the rash, but you may need to use a lot of cream, a lot of, some people use Avenos. There's a line of products that we just saw at the ASCO meeting actually called Lindicare, which is designed to try to get rid of a lot of the alcohol-based products designed for people that have ongoing chemotherapy. Diarrhea can be a problem to the point where Imodium is not sufficient with both drugs, in which case sometimes you need to use paragoric, old-time drugs like paragoric. Some people get a really painful scalp with serafinib. Again, just creams and ointments. And then the hypertension, if you're not up to speed with the newer hypertensive meds, any hypertensive meds, then you need to get involved with either an internist or cardiologist to get somebody to help you manage these people because you will see diastolics that go up over 100. And it's a little bit disconcerting when you're not used to seeing that kind of hypertension. Of course, we've seen that with bevacizumab. What's the presumed mechanism of action with the TKIs, though? Well, they have an antiangiogenic effect, and it's probably a direct effect in the mesangium of the kidney. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and to our community oncologists, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Renal Cell Cancer Update.